stock up on creamy cheeses, offal, sausage, and yes, bacon. Nina Teicholds is an investigative science journalist. Fat does not make you fat. Eating fat does not make you fat. Eight years ago, Simon & Schuster published Nina Teicholds' book, The Big Fat Surprise, or what were the most unexpected responses that you got? Because I can imagine, with a provocative book like that, that there must be people who are not so positively inclined. Like, let's talk about the, the good and the bad and the ugly. So. Eat butter, drink milk whole, and feed it to the whole family. Stock up on creamy cheeses, offal, and sausage, and yes, bacon. Eight years ago, Simon & Schuster published Nina Teicholds' book, The Big Fat Surprise, which is to this day a controversial, non-fiction, science-based book that attacks the common notion that fat is bad for health. The Big Fat Surprise was a New York Times bestseller, was named one of the top 10 non-fiction books by the Wall Street Journal, and one of the year's best science books by The Economist. Nina Teicholds is an investigative science journalist, author, and thought leader in nutrition. She is the founder of Nutrition Coalition, a non-for-profit organization that ensures that nutrition policies are based on the best and most rigorous science. Nina is a graduate of Stanford and Oxford universities. All right. So nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So it's been almost a decade since Simon & Schuster published your book, The Big Fat Surprise. Could you, in short or in a nutshell, explain what the book is about? Yes. So my book was really the first publication that put together all the arguments, scientific, historical, anthropological arguments for how we got it wrong on dietary fat. Uh, and fundamentally, this idea that uh, fat does not make you fat, eating fat does not make you fat, that the fat you eat is not the fat you get, and that saturated fat, the kind of fat that we get from meat and dairy, coconut oil, if you have that, the plant source, um, does not cause heart disease. And that, in fact, we should be much more wary of what we now believe to be healthy fats, which are vegetable oils, more appropriately called seed oils, but like safflower, sunflower, corn oils. And that these oils that we've been told are good are far more dangerous. So it really takes on this whole subject of fat, good fat, bad fat, non-fat, uh, you know, a subject that for all of us who uh, have to eat three times a day um, that we've obsessed about perhaps more than any other in, in terms of what to eat. Um, so that book became a kind of, uh, it was the really the first book to put it all these arguments together. And I mean, it continues to be a book that is, I mean, it, it sounds <laughs> self-serving, but a kind of classic in the field because it it continues to be controversial. Its arguments are still considered novel in many circles, and yet it's sort of the wisdom that came out of that book or the tenets, that, the learnings that came out of that book have disseminated really into every corner of the globe now. So that there is, there are scientists and there are lay people and there are practitioners and doctors who have now come to embrace the ideas that I put forward in that book, which is, which is pretty gratifying. Like you said, it's a, um, it was a controversial book and still is to some people. But what has changed in 
the last, you know, eight years in the a wake lot. of publishing? Yes. So let me just talk about two things that have happened that are really significant. One is that the low-fat diet, the diet that I grew up on, maybe you did too, avoiding yeah. any kind of fat, not having salad dressings on your... Yes, on your, absolutely. <laughs> that was officially declared over uh, by our highest nutrition guidelines, which you know are right on some things and wrong on others, but they had to finally conclude that they would no longer recommend a low-fat diet. And it's a little more complicated than that, but the language of low-fat has disappeared from all guidelines, um, not just our national uh, U.S. guidelines from the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but also the American Heart Association has dropped any low-fat language. Really? And that's because this initial idea that f fat was fattening, right? Uh, Which sounds very appealing. It like sounds, it sounds very easy it, to digest. It's, it's a, you know, for one thing, it's a homonym. So uh, this, the fat that you eat is the fat you get, but one is the fat in food and the other is the fat in your body. And it just seems logical to see fat. It must become fat right, in your body. Right. And there was, the original reasoning was that um, fat has about nine calories per gram. Okay. All food is made up of fat, protein, um, and carbohydrate. So f while fat has nine calories per gram, protein and carbohydrate have about four to five calories per gram. So it was thought, well, fat must be fattening just because it's denser in calories. And then they did huge experiments, um, mainly this one experiment called the Women's Health Initiative that was um, conducted in the late 1990s and its results came out in 2006. It tested nearly 50,000 women on the low-fat diet. And at the end of that experiment, which was funded by the National Institutes of Health, they discovered that the women on the low-fat diet did not look one bit healthier than the women who had followed their regular diet. So no, it had actually been powered to have enough people in it to test cancer, which is quite rare. So, But not lower rates of cancer and, and several kinds of cancer that they looked at, including colon cancer. The women on the low-fat diet weighed about a pound and a half less. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it didn't prevent weight gain, didn't huh. prevent diabetes, it didn't prevent heart disease. So it really... So there was no difference whatsoever. There was no difference at all. And in fact, eating less fat causes you to eat more carbohydrate. If you just think of the image, if you don't have eggs and bacon for breakfast, you're having cereal. Well, the cereal is all grains. That's all carbohydrates. And, and that basically becomes sugar when you eat it in your body. So, and, and this, the experts who created the low fat diet actually warned, uh, in their report, they said, we worried about the low fat diet because it might shift to an excessive consumption of carbohydrates, right? I mean, another example is the snack well phenomenon that everybody seems to know, which is, you know, the low fat well. cookies, no fat, but you eat as much of them as right. you like, right? Yes. And that does doesn't, not make you really thick, work. right? <laughs> that experiment that I just described w was also replicated in other experiments. So there's quite a bit of science to show that this low fat diet, even though it made sense intuitively, it just, in the end, it didn't, it didn't provide the benefits that people thought. That's something that I go through in my book and, and really talk about um, sort of the origins of the low-fat diet and what happened to it. And just to explain to listeners or, or people here watching, the reason it doesn't work to reduce fat in your diet is that fat plus protein, as it naturally occurs in many foods like cheese or eggs, um, that is more satiating. It actually fills you up. 
and, right. and is more satiating. So you're able to eat that food and, and be full. In fact, they've done experiments where they've put pork chops in front of people, stacks of them, and said, you know, eat. People can't overeat on those foods. Whereas things like cookies, crackers, crisps, you know, all of that, chips, I mean, I, you know, who has not stood over a pint of Haagen-Dazs just <laughs> eating their way through it? You, people overeat on those foods for many reasons, but one of them, sugar is addicting, for one, or acts as if it's addicting just as well. And secondly, if you have these sugar spikes, you know, after a bowl of even something healthy sounding like oatmeal, your, um, your sugar, blood sugar goes up and then it plummets. And when you hit that low point, you need, you're starving. And then you, you need to do something to boost your, your blood sugar again. So you would even um, advise against eating oatmeal for breakfast? I know it seems crazy, but, you know, any, I love oatmeal. any starch, <laughs> well, I mean, so let's say something at the outset, which is that the diet that a healthy person such as yourself can eat and feel well on is um, you can eat a wide range of foods because I can see just looking at you that you're metabolically pretty healthy, right? right. Yeah. Um, you, you, unless you're, there are thin people who have diabetes, but let's just say you're not one of them. No, I'm completely tested. Okay, <laughs> no so diabetes. you're you're fine, and I'm I'm fine. I can eat, you know, an occasional piece of cake, or, um, but if I had diabetes or obesity or heart disease, I could not eat that way as much. Um, And oatmeal, surprisingly, like any starch, starchy food, pasta, beans, lentils, all those grains and, and legumes, starch is just sugar molecules holding hands. And the moment <laughs> you eat them, they come apart. And right. that sugar will drive a number of metabolic processes that are not healthy. And it'll to your body, it doesn't matter that you're having a Snickers bar or you're having a, you know, a bowl of healthy whole grains. Interesting. Your body experiences that blood sugar rise, and that leads to a cascade of events that are unhealthy in just a number of ways and, and causes weight gain or, or prevents weight loss. And how would you, what would be the ideal breakfast? I'm not going to linger on this for too long, but no, no, I'm no. just curious. I yeah. think anything that doesn't cause your blood sugar to go up. So that could be, um, that could be yogurt, um, which does have some sugar in it. Things with no sugar are eggs. Uh, any kind of, you know, bacon I know has a bad rap, but it actually has no sugar in it um, and it won't cause your, <laughs> uh, or, um, you know, those traditional breakfast foods, your blood sugar will look like this, a straight line and it will not rise. And plus bacon and eggs or bacon or just eggs or uh, they, they're, they have protein in them, which is absolutely essential for the body to function. And they have a number of other nutrients. Um And they do have cholesterol, but maybe we'll talk about that later. Yes, we're going to talk about that <laughs> later. Absolutely. So what, um, after publishing the book, what was or what were the most unexpected responses that you got? Because I can imagine with a provocative book like that, that there must be people who are not so positively inclined yes. <laughs> yes. towards the book. Well, there's like, let's talk about the, the good and the bad and the ugly. Yes. So yeah. the good, much to my surprise, was that my book was reviewed in three of the most prominent medical and academic journals, which for a book, a popular book, was just almost, I think, unprecedented. So the BMJ, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, which is the most important journal in nutrition, and um, the Lancet, which is the world's oldest medical journal. And they all really gave very positive, strong reviews. And it became a best book 
of the year in numerous publications, Financial Times, The Economist. And so that positive response was really tremendously gratifying. Um, but even before the book came out, there was a post on Huffington Post that was really negative about me and the book. And um, it was by somebody who ran a, uh, a, a <laughs> then ran a clinic that was sort of loosely associated with Yale and Darby, Connecticut. And and that was the beginning of a series of posts that ultimately I had to hire a lawyer and say, I think this is libelous because they were so nasty about me about personally. About person. About me okay. personally. Yeah. So it was, you know, she's a parasite of science and she's um, – um, she must be a, a, a wingnut hiding in her mother's basement and just really insulting things, especially from somebody who considers themselves to be a scientist. Right. I was truly shocked. Right. And, but, you know, in some ways, in, in a kind of paradoxical, perverse way, <laughs> an, an ad hominem attack is maybe a, a, a backhanded compliment because I, and, I think and so. it's, it's similar to, and the reality was that there really wasn't any argument against the substance of my book, um, other than to say that it went against all the conventional wisdom of the time, and that we all know that saturated fat is bad for you, so why are you making any argument to the contrary? But that's, you know, what some people might call eminence-based science rather than evidence-based science. You really, I would well, I was, I then and now welcome any arguments and ideas to the contrary, and I was waiting for that because... I knew this was controversial. Is that isn't that what science and it's what science is about? Isn't that what science is? <laughs> but that was not the reaction that I received. And how so? How did you deal with the more negative responses? Like, how did you deal with it? Did you just decide to block them out, or? Yeah, that's a good question because it's hard to know. I mean, some there are, there are people that you know are n not well-meaning and will not. They're not open to argument. They're just there to harass you and 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 suck the energy out of you. That's what I would call a troll. And and so those people you don't respond to. People with who tried to make what appeared to be substantive criticism, I responded to, and I put responses on my my blog on my homepage, and and so that people would know that I wasn't just ignoring arguments to the contrary or or apparent evidence to the contrary. And I responded to those. And, and then people who are frankly libelous, like this one person, um, I did, I have over the course of the last eight years hired lawyers to respond to and just to say, you know, this is potentially libelous. And usually that makes that kind of critique go, go away. away. Yes. That's a good response, actually. Very smart response rather than just trying to, you know, fight it out. Yeah. I mean, Look, I mean, as I said, you know, it it is important to have substantive debates about the science. It's it's crucially important, but that's often not what is going on in the public sphere, right? And you s kind of saw this coming before publishing the book, did you? You know, in some ways, I did, or I could have anticipated it. Um, in some ways, I'm I think I was naive, but um, I I think maybe anybody is naive given how fast the world is changing right, and, right and not having have you know, a lot of experience with um, exactly the playbook of how people can attack you in various ways. But I should have known in, in that in my book and in my research, I encountered evidence and, and examples of bullying 
of scientists and scholars coming up with or proposing um, unpopular ideas that that have plagued nutrition science going back really to the 1960s really? or even before. I mean, really, this idea that saturated fat is bad for health that was um, that dates to the 1950s, right? Where and did it, became it start? Where very did this popular. Idea start? Well, let me just talk about the bullying for a second, okay. and we'll yeah, go yeah. back to this. Okay. But any ideas that came out to the contrary, for instance, there was a professor in England named John Yudkin who who proposed the idea that it was sugar and not fat that was causing heart disease and other ailments. And actually, his idea has now shown decades later to be very likely to be true. Um, but when he proposed his theories. The scientists who were defending the fat theory, uh, they leapt on him and they called him names and they accused him of being tied to industry and they 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 slimed him and smeared him in, in journals, many of the same tactics that they were then used on me. And then I also interviewed scientists who were working for the vegetable oil industry that when a woman, actually, Mary Enig, came up with some of the original research challenging vegetable oils and suggesting that something called trans fats, which we now know to be bad for health, but in when she was doing her work in the 1970s, that was not known yet. But she was threatening uh, the viability of these fats that were widely used. And so I talked to scientists who were hired by vegetable oil companies to stand up in conferences and harass her and to oh. question her and to to just bully her off the stage. And I met scientists who said who had been subjected to that kind of behavior who told me they just had to leave the entire field of science because they felt it was such an unpleasant place to work where every an, uh, word in your work is criticized. Everything is scrutinized to a much higher degree than anybody else and I've also been treated in that way. Right. So I'm very curious about that. Um, because it's a, it's a side of the world of science that we don't know. Right. Yeah. And we talked about it a little bit before, but the world of science, um, seems to be a foolproof world to me and it doesn't actually seem to be that way. Right. right? So why did those people back off the people you mentioned earlier or tried to, you know, couldn't deal with it? And what gave you the courage to actually follow through with what you've done? Well, as you say, the world of science, we expect, and as the daughter of an engineer who was always had his nose in a science book, and we were always talking about it around the dinner table, I I truly thought that everybody was like my, my father, who right. was interested in opposing ideas, that it was a world of rationality, calm, integrity, people dispassionately viewing ideas and observations that might um, be inconsistent with their own and that the world would move rationally forward. Right. That was so far from what I found when I started researching in this field, literally to the point that some of my first phone calls were to scientists where I started to talk about the question, this is the early 2000s, you know, can we, should we, should we consider the idea that maybe the low-fat diet is not the uh, savior we think it is, um, which as we discussed, turned out to be true. But they were, they actually said, listen, if you're going to even take that line, I can't even talk to you. And I would be, people would hang up on That's me. That's crazy. Scientists in academic, you know, in universities who were too afraid even to talk about the subject. And, and immediately I knew I was researching something that was not about science. Um, but, you know, all these all these researchers and scientists, they're afraid for their funding. They're afraid for, uh, you know, 
the future of their careers. And really, it seems uh, unfair, but it is true. Like anybody who works in a corporation knows that if you step out of line that, and if you are not following along in, in the footsteps of what your superiors say, you risk your job. And it's no different in academia hmm. that people who who challenge conventional advice will often be, and this is something I, I found and wrote about in my book, disinvited from conferences, losing their research grants, a scientist being told in the halls of the NIH, if you, if you keep up your opposition to the fat theory, we're going to cut off your NIH grant. And then he did lose his grant. And actually, he wrote a book describing sort of the, the whole group of scientists defending the idea that fat and cholesterol are bad for you, that he called it a diet heart mafia. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, you know, what gave me the courage to keep going? Well, one is I found ideas that I believe to be not only true, and I feel like truth is a form of justice in a way. I mean, if if you're sick and you have diabetes or you're struggling with, you're somebody who's struggling with 100 extra pounds in your body or fighting heart disease, and then you're given advice that truly doesn't help or is based on bad science or couldn't possibly make you worse, which I, th I think in general the situation that we're living in today, this is a kind of truth that is it's so important that it be available to people. It serves people. It serve, it, well, it, it's so important for them to know this for their own health. And I believe in, I believe in science and truth just in its own abstract pure form too. I think we should be able to advance ideas based on new observations. I just, I believe in science. I don't know that I'm especially courageous. I mean, I'm not a, if you, look, that way. If, you <laughs> if you look at this field, you'll see that it is, it, it is journalists who have carried it forward and so now some doctors, but myself, there's another journalist named Gary Taubes who, because Precisely because our careers do not depend on getting grants from the National Institutes of Health, and we do not depend on going to academic conferences for our careers. So we are able to do things in a way without having the same kind of repercussions. But I have talked to hundreds of scientists who agree with me but says, I can't say that because I'll be, what we would say now is being, I'll be canceled out of the field. Right. It sounds like you're more a... Uh you're fighting for science. That is true. So that was always that was my initial motivation, and 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 is still very strong for me. Now that I have had hundreds, thousands of people write me or call, you know, send me letters saying, you know, your book saved my life. Literally, I mean, it just brings tears to my eyes, and I think, well, then this is it's also the public service of it matters to me too. So let's get into the details of the book. Yeah. <laughs> and first, in order to do that, I want to be sort of prime our minds and the, the minds of our listeners and kind of be on, understand what unsaturated and saturated fats are and what cholesterol really is. Okay. So if you could, I know that's a, an, an extensive question. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, these are, that's exactly what's been at the heart of all of our dietary advice going back to the 50s, right? right. So. Let's start with cholesterol. Cholesterol is a substance that is in every cell of your body, and it is essential to many of your bodily functions. And let's say one of the most important is your hormones and all your sex hormones and all of that. It's essential for the creation of those. There was an idea that started coming to the fore in the 50s that a high cholesterol 
would lead to heart disease, heart attack, death. Um, and that people who had high cholesterol in their blood would uh, were more likely to have a heart attack. And, and this s- subject was studied in the 50s and 60s and 70s. By the end of the 70s, data started coming out showing that actually it was the, the amount of cholesterol in your blood was not well correlated with your likeliness of, your likelihood of having a heart attack. And even more shocking, the data on women came out that the higher the cholesterol level in women, especially women after menopause, the more likely you were to live longer. But when that data came out from the Framingham study, which is really a well-known long-term study, they decided that it was too confusing to put out separate data, separate advice for men and for women, so they just decided to publish the the data that they had on men. And for men, it was a little more complicated. It looked like if you were from 50 to 55, I think, your high cholesterol could be significant and in, in significantly associated with, uh, with heart attacks. But for the most part, there was very little association for men either. And then we, it became possible to look at high-density cholesterol, HDL, and your low-density cholesterol, LDL. And that is, uh, we don't have to get into the weeds, but you know, mainly now we focus on LDL as, you know, high LDL has now kind of taken the place of total cholesterol to be the one that is right. supposed to be the killer. But if you look at people of heart attacks, they're just as likely to have high LDL as low LDL. And LDL turns out to be very unstable. I can, in the course of a week, change my diet to give myself, I can change my LDL by 30, 40 points if I want to. In a week? <laughs> yes. And LDL is actually only calculated. It's not a directly measured um, uh, score. So it turns out that it's not as reliable as we think it is. It's not irrelevant, but it's not as reliable a predictor of heart attacks. Um, and if you look at what way LDL is going, if you look at 30 other markers of heart disease and inflammation, all of those markers can be going in this direction, all suggesting, say, that you, you're lowering your risk of a heart attack. And LDL might be going in the other direction, which, you know, is suggests it might be less reliable, be more of an outlier. But one of the things I talk about in my book is that because the pharmaceutical companies found a drug to lower your LDL, that's right, statins, statins, the yeah. biggest selling drug in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. Really? So it's the, the blockbuster drug. Uh, they, they, LDL became a kind of, it, it, there was so much money behind favoring that as the most important heart disease risk marker, right? There's just so much invested in that. Um, versus, say, your HDL, your high density uh, lipoproteins, mm-hmm. your HDL turns out to be a better predictor of your heart disease risk. And what makes HDL go up? Uh, well, let me say this first. Pharmaceutical companies tried to develop a drug that would raise your HDL, but they couldn't. It turns out that drug actually harmed, did more harm than good. So that, so they were not interested in HDL <laughs> as a result. And, and, and that has sort of fallen away from the discourse. Um, but HDL turns out to be more better correlated and better able to predict a heart attack than LDL in in quite a few long-term studies. Or let's just say it's debated. Uh, so you would say that pharma, the pharma industry has a vested interest in 
maintaining it, to sell yeah. statins and therefore the belief that, um, that it won't, yeah now there's another generation of drugs beyond statins um, mm-hmm. but i think yes i mean they definitely have a an a vested interest in seeing um, LDL be um, prioritized. But interestingly, the American Heart Association does not, when they they, calc- they have a risk calculator of your heart disease risk, it doesn't include LDL, which is maybe a tacit recognition that that is less important than we think it is. So, um, And saturated and unsaturated fats. Yes. So, okay. So all first of all, there's fat in all food, in, and there's a mixture of saturated and unsaturated fats, all foods except sugar. So um, so your typical steak, say, which we think is being, you know, larded with saturated fat, that's only 30% of that, of the fat in that steak is is saturated. And it's, it's um, you know, you can have a mackerel fish and that has more saturated fat in it. So it's, all foods are a mixture of fats. To say it's saturated merely means that the molecule Fat is is mainly um, carbons um, uh, that are connected in a molecule chain, and if it means that the the double bonds around it are are all saturated with hydrogen. Sorry, so there's no double bonds. So that mm. that that all the the bonds in the molecule have a hydrogen attached to them, so they're saturated. There's no opportunity for more connections. So it's very dense, and it's as a result, the molecule is actually flat. And so the molecules are able to stack on top of each other and and without much air between them. And that's that's why they're called uh, – that's why they're solids at room temperature mainly. So we're talking butter, coconut butter, um, ghee, tallow, suet, um, different kinds of saturated fats. But so they're solid. Um, whereas – uh, unsaturated fats, they're, they're not saturated in hydrogen and they have double bonds. The double bonds cause them to kink in the chain. And so they're wiggly molecules because the double bond means it kind of makes the molecule, um, shorten up like that. So that makes for that they, do, they're not able to lay, they can't, they can't stack on top of each other. Mm-hmm. There's more space between them. So those are oils at room temperature. Hmm. And, you know, we've, and so that's, all the kinds of oils that you might cook with. Um, the one exception, almost all the oils that we know of, including canola or sunflower, safflower, corn, most of the oil that's used in the United States is soybean oil. The one exception is uh, olive oil, which really is different. Um, it's a, it's a mono unsat- mainly monounsaturated fats, which means it only has one double bond, whereas all those other oils have multiple double bonds. We've always been told that those oils are good because they lower cholesterol, right? right? Well, we've just talked about how maybe lowering cholesterol is not as effective as we thought. But uh, we've what ha- people don't understand is that because they have those double bonds, they those double bonds can open up at any time, so when the oil is left out, but especially when heated, remember heat speeds up chemical reactions, the double bonds open up, and what are they attached to? Oxygen. So that's um, that's oxidation, which drives inflammation. So oils, especially when they're heated, cause huge numbers of oxidation products um, to flood your body. And many of these um, degrade into known toxins. One of them is called aldehydes. Another one is um, acrylic. Acrylin, it's been a long time since I've said that. But it's the same toxin that's in cigarettes. So there's a whole side of vegetable oils that has not really 
been known or discussed. But when there were large clinical trials replacing uh, saturated fats with unsaturated fats, so replacing butter with margarine and instead of regular milk, having soy-filled milk. And in those experiments, the people who ate the high vegetable oil diets, they always, almost always saw significantly higher rates of cancer. In human, large human experiments, experiments on humans that took place in the 1960s and 70s. That's incredible. So if we would divide it into good, the good and bad category, vegetable oils avoid. It's exactly the opposite of what we've well, been told. It is. What we think, except for with the exception of olive oil. Olive oil. So what I would say is that stable fats are the solid fats. So, and they're better for cooking because they do not oxidize or go rancid. So that's butter, ghee, coconut oil, coconut butter. Um, I know people can't stand to hear this word, but you know, lard, um, tallow, suet, those are stable fats and they will not oxidize and they will not drive inflammation. Unstable fats that are dangerous are all the oils that we, we have long thought to be good for us, um, that we've mentioned. And in between is, is olive oil. Avocado oil has a similar profile to olive oil. And those are, they have a sort of in-between profile in terms of oxidation and inflammation. And I think they're good to use for sort of cold applications, but maybe not heating. Right. So salad dressings or cold sauces. And it's also maybe good to think about the fact that in restaurants, they probably use vegetable oils a lot. They do. Because it's cheaper and... Yes, they're cheaper. That's the main reason that they use them. And they mainly use soybean oil. And one of the things that I discovered in my reporting was that um, that they had tremendous problems when they, they actually, they, those oils were actually more stable when they had trans fats in them for reasons we don't have to go into. But when they got rid of trans fats, the oils to became- To make them healthier. Yeah, to, make, to get rid of trans fats, which we discovered okay. are bad for us. Um, they, but trans fats- were created by a process that actually stabilized the oils called hydrogenation. So when they got rid of that, the oils became quite unstable. And so that's led to places like McDonald's and Burger King's having to invent new technologies to deal with these highly in unstable oils that were, I mean, let me just to explain, they're so unstable that the uniforms by the people who were working in the restaurant would spontaneously combust when they were in the back of a truck going to the washers. And then they would combust again in the dryer when they were being dried after being washed because they had all these toxic, these, these oxidation products that are highly unstable. So these restaurants, um, the fast food chains, had to create things, something called like a nitrogen blanket to go on top of their uh, their fryers to absorb the, uh, the oxidation products. They had to put silicone beads inside the oil in their fryers, again, to absorb the dangerous oxidation products. So this is not imaginary. And I mean, this is something that industry has dealt with and understands the problems associated with it. Um, but... Uh, it is true that 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 one really does have to be careful about uh, going and, as I say, especially like fried foods in restaurants. You know, those anything because the oil will enter the food. Those oxidation products have been measured in fried foods. They enter your body. They've been measured in the body. They've been measured as passing through the blood-brain barrier. Um, hundreds of them. I mean, two hundred and fifty measured in one piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken. So, <laughs> it does give one pause. 
And so, you know, you can go into a restaurant and say, you know, I'm I'm allergic to those oils I need for my... That's what, exactly what I was thinking right now. Whatever to be cooked in butter. Hmm. And that's safer. Huh. That's a good And tastes better. And tastes better, exactly. <laughs> so... I'm running a marathon. We briefly spoke about this as well. Yeah. I'm running the marathon this year for the very first time. That's impressive. And many marathon runners now run the marathon in a state of ketosis, right? right? Which brings me to the keto diet. And we're not going to talk about what if the, the keto diet is good for athletes or appropriate for athletes, but I just want to talk about the keto diet in general. What are your thoughts? The ketogenic diet is the full word for that. And it is at least 100 years old. It was discovered uh, to treat initially people with diabetes, um, where people can't tolerate any kind of sugar anymore in their bodies, or they're born that way. And so the ketogenic diet is basically a diet that is absent of sugar. So that means things that are obviously sugar, like um, candy, Things that are starches have starch in them, which we talked about because that's sugar molecules holding hands. And then also, um, surprisingly, fruit, which so much many fruits are very high in sugar. And so by cutting down on starches and sugars, what replaces it? It's maybe a little bit higher in protein, but it's mainly replaced by fat, which as we discussed, fat does not make you fat. fat so is good. fat <laughs> can be your friend. Right. Um, and by doing that, um, first of all, it's, I mean, the science, there's now been over a thousand clinical trials, right? That's the grade A1 level evidence, the most rigorous kind of evidence that there is. Over a thousand clinical trials on this diet. It is by no means anymore a fad diet. There's tremendous scientific literature, um, that exists to support it. And and so what do we know about it? Number one, it is um, it is superior for weight loss. And that's because sugar uh, will trigger the an insulin called, uh, sorry, a hormone called insulin in your body. And insulin is sort of the fat deposition hormone. So it'll take any kind of, uh, it'll take that sugar and, and sort of sock it into your fat cells. Mm-hmm. That's a simplistic way of explaining it. But it's um, so it is superior for weight loss, um, and it's also good for weight loss because it, the fat and protein are satiating, which we talked about. So you just have less of a desire. You feel full. Um, it is the only nutritional approach other than starvation, which can reverse a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. It can actually swivel that disease into reverse. It will come back if you you know, start eating poorly again. But I mean, that's the most expensive disease that we treat in this country. And it's afflicts now uh, prediabetes and diabetes more than half of the country. So it's tremendous um, what its potential power is. And that is data with five year results, which is quite long term for in nutrition studies. It also improves all markers of inflammation, uh, which which um, are, you know, are connected to many diseases, most prominently heart disease. And it improves all your markers of heart disease, your risk factors for heart disease, except that there's a transient rise, which discovered that's a short-term rise in your LDL, right? But that's transient, and for most people it goes away. Um, Within weeks or You know, I think maybe years. months. Okay. Um, but again, five-year results on that to show that it's safe. Right. So 
everything, your every every health indicator looks better. I think some of the more exciting results to come out um, are. Uh, experiments on mental health, including uh, neurodegenerative diseases. So there's been experiments now in Alzheimer's showing it better than any medication on the market. It improves uh, sc- Alzheimer's scores, improves people's functioning. Again, a clinical trial, which is the most rigorous kind of experiment, and the only diet that has been shown to do that. And there's a fascinating small experiment showing uh, inpatient experiment in a hospital in France, which showed that after a ketogenic diet for a year, they reduced the uh, depression scores by 40% in that population. Again, better outcomes than any any drug that is Another, known. Any other diet. Than any other diet. No other diet has had this. There's there's small benefits they found from a Mediterranean diet, but nothing of this magnitude. And more, I think, more astonishingly, is this the the people with it's called schizoaffective disorders, but maybe better known as schizophrenic. Their scores improved by seventy percent, which is extraordinary. Again, a condition for which there has been no drug therapy that puts that into reverse. So, I mean, its potential implications for health are are enormous. Um, and I think I just want to say, you know, there is sort of, I mean, it's we have to understand that the ketogenic diet is, we can't just talk about it as science, right? It exists mm-hmm. in a world where people have, you know, researchers and scientists have been phobic really about fat. So a diet that's higher in fat is something that has encounters a lot of resistance. Right. Plus, if it's a di- diet that requires that you cut out most manufactured, you know, highly processed foods, you're talking about alienating the drug, the food industry. It's not popular in in corporate America. Let's put it that way. And so there's quite a lot of resistance to it, and and there's not good coverage of it in in the the lay press or even the medical literature. Absolutely, and that's my biggest problem with it because it's the first diet I ever considered. I'm not a big dieter. I just believe in moderation. Hey. For myself. Um, but the keto diet is the first diet I've considered starting. But there's just so little to read about it. I feel like the materials are... It's very difficult for me to understand what is this really about. Right. Well, I mean, I can... We can maybe with the podcast, we can I can offer some websites to go where they've collected and collated all the scientific research are on it. There's something called the Society for Metabolic Healthcare Practitioners, a group of hundreds of doctors and clinicians who mm. are working with it, and they have an excellent database of all the science for different kinds of conditions. I think um, that would be great to yeah. just list a, a number of them and uh, in the description. It's important because it is not it's not getting out into the popular literature that I can see as much as it should be. Um, I also did, uh, was co-authored a paper, a review paper on the, di- on, on the diet and, and, and let's, let's not call it a diet so much. It's a nutritional approach because it's right. not a short term fix. It's right. a way of it's eating and living. You have, and, and it does take a while to adapt to. I mean, that's to be, you know, any kind of shift in the way you eat, I mean, you may not feel good for a while. Um, and you have to, and you need to, you need to seek guidance. I mean, there's things like drinking broth the first few weeks if you're going into it. And your body has to become accustomed to a different fuel. Hmm. Just a way of understanding, it's like a hybrid car. Like your body has hit, has tradition, most of us have run on sugar as fuel, glucose. And so that's been our fuel source, and, and everything in our body has is operated in that way. Now we're shifting to have our fuel source be fat, 
And that converts into something called ketone bodies, which is the source of ketogenic. So your body operates, its fuel source is ketone bodies. So now we're becoming like an electric car, right? Rather than a gas car, right? Right. we're switching our fuel source. But what do we have to do? We have to upgrade upregulate enzymes, downregulate others. Our whole m- metabolism has to shift over to this other diet, and that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. It no. doesn't. And so, um, so it is sort of just shifting the way you eat. And for people who are right now listening and thinking, forget it, I will never <laughs> give up bread, because I used to be one of those people. I would cook my own I'm bread. Still, I'm still a... Uh, I will never give it up, or I have, I'm never giving up those chocolate chip cookies. It's also true that you're palate takes time to adjust you know you're, what what is sweet to you in six months not eating sugar is like you know what's sweet to you is is 90 percent dark chocolate starts to taste too sweet to you it's right absolutely bizarre right. how yeah. your whole palate shifts but just going back to the research the paper that um the review paper that we did one of the questions that people often have is well doesn't this shorten your life okay maybe you you're you lose weight and you feel better, but then in the end, it 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 increases your mortality rate of mortality, which is you die earlier. But that long term data that is presented in papers, none of that reflects an actual ketogenic diet. They're looking at at people who are consuming forty percent, even higher of their calories as carbohydrates. And the ketogenic diet is is down to, I mean, it's really should be 25% or less. So these studies that come out with the so-called ketogenic or low-carbohydrate diet are not actually looking at those populations. So, um, so there is no data to show. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, we can reasonably assume if your diet is helping you lose weight, swiveling your diabetes or your prediabetes into reverse, improving all your cardiovascular risk factors reversing any number of conditions, conditions you don't even think are associated with diet, like, you know, skin, skin problems right. and any, you know. Energy, or, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, you have better energy because right. you're not having these glucose peaks and valleys. Anything that's making you feel so much better in so many ways is leading to better health. And therefore, one has to assume longer life. So we're going to talk about the meat substitutes. Okay. For a second. Recently, uh, two class action lawsuits have been filed to, uh, against Beyond Meat um, for allegedly making false and misleading claims regarding the protein content in their products. What are your thoughts on meat substitutes like that? Well, I, in general, and I think that eating real foods, real whole foods that are minimally processed is a good solution is a good approach to better nutrition. Uh, and that used to be, I mean, I don't know if you remember Michael Pollan, a very famous food writer, but he used to write about the importance of having locally sourced foods. And there was, um, there have been all kinds of whole food movements that now seem almost like ancient history, but they were, you know, this was all anybody really talked about was locally sourced foods, eating foods from your local farmers, supporting your local <laughs> farmer or rancher. And now we have a food with an ingredient list. I mean, these these um, meat replacements, their ingredient list is a mile long and it's, it's not unsimilar from, you know, what I feed my dog. Um, it's, it's, which is, you know, something that has to be shelf stable for several years. It's, and it includes ingredients that which they're discovering, um, you know, to which people might have allergies. Um, they haven't been, really been tested. Uh, 
So I'm concerned about any food that is so highly processed with so many different ingredients and is not natural. Right. I mean, we it's nothing that we've evolved to eat. Um, and, you know, whatever you might say about meat or you might believe its impact on the environment, we evolved eating meat. I mean, there's no question about it. You have to just um, – you, you can't deny that humans evolved eating meat. That's the way we evolved. Um, so whether we want to reject that now or not, that's our that's our history. And our bodies, which are exquisitely sensitive and evolved over, you know, millions of years, are evolved for um, those natural foods. We are not evolved to adjust to the kind of the food environment in which we live. And nothing could be more obvious since there's so much sickness now. Um, as far as the protein content, it's, um, you know, proteins are made up of amino acids and you need to have all the amino acids eaten together in order to get protein that you need. And we need about 30 grams of protein per meal, a little bit. I mean, what's recommended to us is the bare minimum of what we need to survive. But, you know, most people need more than that. Certainly, uh, if you're if you're an older person, you need more than that because you're not absorbing it as well. If you're a woman, you might need more than that, um, especially if you're having children. Growing young children need more of that to build their muscles. Um, if you so, it's protein is absolutely essential for life. And and the problem with these um, plant based products is they're often deficient in an amino acid called lysine, and therefore, which doesn't occur naturally in plant foods, and so they don't have the complete set of amino acids that are needed to create protein in your body. So it's not true that the protein from beans uh, is the same as protein from meat. It is not. It is not a complete protein, and your body will not process it that way. And so that's, uh, you know, people think they're getting their protein needs, but they really aren't. Um, and again, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, if you want to be the difference between this kind of person and this kind of person is your ability to have you know, muscles on your body to hold your skeleton up right, straight. right. So it's really important to get enough protein and to get a complete protein. And that is, um, it's very hard to get in any animal, uh, any plant foods. I mean, soy is better um, than other other options. But these fake meat companies are mainly relying on pea protein isolates, yeah, I think, peas. many of them. That's not a complete protein. Hmm. The other thing to know about protein is that you really want to eat it in a way that is um, – not going to put on, you know, not involve you consuming excessive calories. So you have to eat nearly 800 gram, oh, sorry, 800 calories worth of peanut butter, right? <laughs> Which is not a complete protein anyway, but that's, you know, you, you, in order to get enough protein in your body, let's say that's uh, 25 grams of protein, that's 800 calories of peanut butter versus 125 calories of red meat yeah that's so it's an easy choice it's an easy choice plus the peanut butter comes with sugars and 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 in them so that you're then also having your sugar spike which is not there's no sugar in red meat so so i I think it's you know whatever you think about red meat for me there's been a lot of negative um lots of negative uh, negatives about it but it you know it doesn't cause any kind of disease and it's an excellent source of protein and it's sugar-free. So that is something that can't be said about any number of meat replacements out there. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let me I'm say one more storing thing. storing information. <laughs> yeah. 
But you know, even a McDonald's burger is the 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 content of the the meat is just meat. That's it. There's no other fillers or, or really. It's just meat. And and you know what's you see like the classic picture in any newspaper story about bad food is always a hamburger. Right. But is it and and when they ask people how many burgers they eat, you know they they always look like the least healthy people. And then the researchers will always blame the meat. But what is it? What else are you eating there? Right. You know, you've it's got the, the bun. bun it's yeah. the milkshake. It's the fries. And then they blame the meat. But I mean, those um, you know, the meat itself is probably. The, the healthiest, healthiest thing you're going to get there. So what about your nonprofit organization? Can you tell us yeah. something about that? <laughs> so in, I founded a non-for-profit in uh, 2015 called the Nutrition Coalition, um, which is at nutritioncoalition.us. And the goal of that group was simply to have our nutrition policy be based on rigorous science, right? To go through a rigorous process. And the reason I founded it was that when my book came out, it was about the same time that our U.S. Dietary Guidelines, which is the main nutrition policy, it dominates. It is by law required to inform all federal nutrition programs, so school lunches, feeding programs for the elderly, any kind of hospital food. And it turns out that everybody considers them the gold standard. So Anywhere you go, any anybody, your nutritionist, doctor, dietitian, they're all going to give you the guidelines. Basically, the guidelines are if you think that eating a diet with more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, um, some fish, only low-fat dairy and lean meat, if you think that's the healthiest diet, that is the guidelines. So, um, but I had just come out of reading like 10,000 studies from my book and scientific studies and all the history of nutrition research going back to the 1920s at least. And I, and I looked at this report, this 480 page report that was undergirding our national nutrition policy. And I just couldn't believe, like none of the research was there. They hadn't considered billions of dollars in clinical trials that had been funded by our own national institutes of health. Why? Because when the results came out, they did not con they did not support our government policy. Mm. Um, for example, the Women's Health Initiative, that study we talked about that showed the low-fat diet was not effective in preventing disease, that study, the results from that study were never reviewed by the dietary guidelines. Did they see them? Did it they was see a those studies? $600 million study. They've ignored all those thousand-plus clinical trials that I told you about on the, a low-carb or ketogenic diet. Those have all been ignored. So they clearly are not based on a rigorous process. So we don't want to go into it too much, but it, it's really important that our nutritional guidance be based on rigorous science. It's considered the gold standard, and it ought to be. And so what we were able to accomplish in the first years, we were able to get the National Academy of Science, which is the most prestigious scientific body in the United States. They did the first ever peer review of the dietary guidelines process. I and mean, there are three reports now that have come out from the National Academy of Sciences really establishing that there are major flaws with the basic scientific review process in the guidelines. Among many other things, they don't, they don't, they lack transparency. They're, they're not using up-to-date science. There's, they are not, the science is not current at the time of the report. They are one of the only guidelines process not to disclose any conf of the conflicts of interest on their expert committee, which 
in another publication uh, study that I did, we found that 95% of the members of the expert committee had ties to the food or pharmaceutical industry, and more than half had, more than half of the committee had more than 20 ties. But how do you think it's possible that it's been unnoticed for such a long time, or just ignored? Um, yes, it's it's hard to understand that. I I I think that in Washington and all the public interest groups in this area ha have such they have such a they have so many close ties to the government, and and they do not and they've been considering this. They're uh, They've been supporting the guidelines for so long and so much depends on it that it's just heretical to suggest that they are anything, that there could be anything wrong with them. Right. So it's almost a lack of questioning. They don't want to question. They don't want to see this science. And then you have to understand one of the agencies that issues the guidelines, Department of Health and Human Safety uh, Services, they also run the National Institutes of Health, which dispenses all the research money to all scientists. And the other agency, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, also puts, gives hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to nutrition research. So you do not want to be in any the recipient of any of those grants. You cannot bite the hand that feeds you. So there's a whole mechanism to that enforces keeping this policy in place. And and almost there's hardly anybody that wants to challenge it because their research funding and ties are are wound up um, with the government agencies that are running the guidelines. And your NPO is trying to? We have been the only watchdog group and the only critical group out there trying to point out fundamental flaws. And I, you know, I think I'm proud of the work that we've done. We've also been able to pull together sympathetic mainstream nutrition scientists to write papers and examine the guidelines really for the first time in their um, now more than 40 year history. So we're working on it, but you know, it's like the Titanic. It's just this huge boat. That I mean, you like to shift <laughs> to shift course just a tiny bit takes a long time. But I think you know it really has to change because they're so all controlling. I mean, just to give you one other example, you cannot be you cannot get hired by a hospital to teach nutrition if you're a dietitian or you're a nurse or wh whatever your degree, unless you teach the guidelines. If you teach something else, you'll just be, you'll be kicked out. Or at least that's the stories that have been told to me. And there's something similar for doctors and hospitals. There's, there's, it's, it's very, um, it's, it's a very dominant policy. I think it's very important that you do that work and that <laughs> there's you. at least a, you know, a counterforce um, to that. So well done. Thank you. <laughs> Last question, uh, or if first, do you have any upcoming projects that you would like the listeners to know about? Well, I have launched a Substack, which maybe we, it's it's called Unsettled Science, and it is meant to provide um, objective, non no industry funding. Uh, it's it's meant to provide a kind of more rigorous look at uh, the nutrition headlines that we see today. You know, how do how do you think about the latest headline on red meat? I'm covering that. I'm also I'm trying to just provide people with um, another source of it, of information that's really well reported, because you know when I look out there at the media landscape, I it's very hard for me to find good information that isn't just um, sort of the conventional wisdom. So I've done that, and I would love for people to have subscribers. It's currently free. Excellent. We'll put that in the description as well. All right. So we're going to. 
finish off with the last question, completely unrelated. Um, if you could have drinks with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, let's just say, I think one of my heroes is Florence Nightingale, which sounds maybe old school, but she was a very strong woman, a fantastic scientist, an original thinker, and very, very brave in her time. So I would like to talk to her about her experience. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me. Here.